very pleased that I can welcome Bill Sharp, who is the original thinker and developer behind the Three Horizons tool for transformation that brings, I guess, future thinking into current practice. So what we're going to be talking about today is something a little different for the podcast, which is how to apply a tool for future thinking in current practice to this kind of very complex issue of decarbonisation of hard to abate sectors. So Bill, could I ask you just to give a little bit of an introduction to you and your background and, uh, and then we'll go from there. Yes, thanks Alex and thank you for having me on this, this podcast. Um, I'm a scientist by training. I learned maths and physics and experimental psychology at university and then made my career as an R&D manager in the computer industry. Um, and the key thing about computing in the computer industry, as everyone will know, is that it changes really fast. So at any time, as you look out 5, 10, 15 years, you have to anticipate that the world is really going to be looking very different. So if you're doing R&D, you're always having to take some sort of view of the future. So I spent some time working on government programs back in the 80s when we were last thinking about artificial intelligence. Um, and then I went to work in Hewlett Packard. Um, in a corporate lab, their first corporate lab outside Palo Alto. And that's where I really learned my craft in terms of using futures. Um, in the corporate labs, you were exploring either how to continue and reinforce existing businesses or critically how to start completely new ones. Um, and so you had to make some sort of judgment about what the future market would be. Um, and I brought in and established scenario planning and scenario practice as a way of having that conversation with the business managers about what the future might hold for their businesses. Um, and then when I left HP, I set up a small um, innovation consultancy with another colleague and we started bringing those same sort of practices um, into our relations with clients, innovating new products, exploring the business strategies that would go with them. And then over time, I've just gradually migrated into bringing those tools and methods into a much wider field of use as it's become apparent that um, on the one hand, every industry in the world is going to have to think about major transformation. And also that most, most people and most industries don't have any very good tools for doing it. Um, so I've over the last decade moved into just really trying to support and spread a common practice that is available for everyone to use and to bring about these sort of changes that we're going to have to make. For those who are unfamiliar with Three Horizons as developed by you and, and your team, could you just give a sort of a highlight of, I, and I know this is a, a funny question because it's a, a significant body of work, but if you were going to explain this to a layman in industry, how, how do we talk about this? What, what are those Three Horizons at the top, at the top line? Yeah, and the first thing I'll say is that this emerged from work I was doing with other colleagues in the futures field. Um, and in fact, emerged on um, a piece of work for a government foresight project on intelligent infrastructure systems, sort of anticipating the world we're now in and smart vehicles and intelligent infrastructure and so on. And the idea of Three Horizons was really just, just quite simple and basic. Um, that at any time, if you're looking at emerging technologies or emerging systems of life, then the first horizon is just the way we're getting things done now, the taken for granted business as usual. Um, and by looking at it as a, a pattern that we all produce every day, we can notice that if any one player drops out, someone else will take their place. I mean, if you took 
driving on the roads. They're all using internal combustion engine cars, and it doesn't really matter if one manufacturer goes out or another one comes in. There's a whole pattern of life that we all get up every day and reproduce. That's the first horizon. It's very well embedded. It's very settled. It's life as normal. Nothing lasts forever. Nothing in the universe will last forever. So you can always look out into the future and say, at what point in the future might we be living with a very different system? And how might that come into being? And who's going to pioneer it? What will it look like? And do we, are we trying to bring it about or is somebody else? And that's the third horizon. So all sorts of questions will arise about how it will come about, when it'll come about, who's going to pioneer it. But you know there's going to be something different in the future, and that's the third horizon. And then the second horizon is that entrepreneurial space where people are seeing that the first horizon is maybe now beginning to lose its fit, maybe beginning to fail, maybe no longer grasping the opportunities of the future. Um, and so that's where people are trying new things, being very entrepreneurial, some things succeed, some fail. So it's a messy transitional mode of, of being in the world uh, where you try things out. And eventually one or two of them win out and become the foundations of that third horizon pattern. And then gradually all the resources move over and become the new normal. So the horizon three becomes the new, the new first horizon. It, it's as simple as that. It's just today's pattern, the future one, and the transitional um, activity between. In the context of industrial decarbonisation, I suppose for me, what what I can see is there's almost like a line between, uh, not line. Those horizons are perhaps the climate visionaries, the people that see this big opportunity, or industrial visionaries who can see this future of circular economy way out there in these new business models. But then what they also need to be able to do is weave that future in with the everyday people, engineers, designers, people that are making things happen, and bring in, again, that entrepreneurial group. So that's my that's my layman's kind of reflection on what you're saying. Does that does that hold true? Do you think that that does that sound uh, coherent for a, a decarbonisation example? Yeah, you, you've you've put it perfectly, and I think what you've just demonstrated is this is really easy to get hold of. This isn't complicated stuff, and the reason it's easy to get hold of is that these three ways of behaving in the world are just completely natural to us and crop up absolutely everywhere. Um, and that was the critical step in making Three Horizons a method that works, is saying, I was actually working on this project I mentioned, um, and being a government project, very concerned with evidence, and what's the evidence of the future? And of course, in some sense, we have no facts about the future, but we do have evidence. If somebody says, I have a vision of a circular economy, I have a vision of humans as an interplanetary species, you may or may not think they can do what they're saying they're trying to do. But the fact that they're holding that vision and acting to bring it into being is something you can you can just test and go and look and say, is somebody really trying to produce nuclear fusion and have they put the resources in? Are they holding a, a vision of that as clean energy in the future or not? Is somebody are investing in these new opportunities? Are the venture capitalists moving into putting all their money into reinventing education and disrupting that market? So the critical idea of Three Horizons is exactly what you said, is that there are three different ways of behaving today towards the future. We call it three qualities of the future in the present moment. So there's the quality of keeping life going, keeping the lights on, what many of your uh, listeners will be doing, which is getting up every day and being responsible for ensuring that, that life goes on as, as we all expect it. 
the visionary has to detach from that and hold in mind this vision of a very different world and every day behave with complete commitment to bringing that about in the face of the current one. And the entrepreneur is sort of looking both ways and making some bets on when's a good time to move and make an investment. And of course, as we know, most of those investments in, in venture capital don't, don't pay off. Some of them will, some of them won't. So all three orientations are completely natural to us. You can explain it to everyone from a, um, a child to a CEO and they all get it because they because it's the way we live our lives three natural orientations to the future in the present or weaving their threads every day into the future and whilst i i, I yeah i totally get that everyone can understand it i suppose sometimes when you're in the thick of your own system or your own path of transformation there are those and we're going to talk about this a little later on those sort of both negative and positive voices that can sometimes get in the way and murky the waters and actually make that transition to that necessary new future quite quite complicated or difficult or contentious um, and this this is also a, a model a way a practice that can help navigate that I think first recognizing that these are three natural orientations that everyone's got and can recognize the next step is the one you've made which is noticing that they don't always have a very productive conversation in fact we talk about them being either mindsets or perspectives as a mindset each one thinks it's the right view of the world and the other ones must be wrong. And the most classic conversation is between the established money-making, large-scale, current committed system and somebody walks in the door um, and says, I've got this idea of running cars on batteries um, and getting all our power from photovoltaics and, and wind turbines. And it looks pitifully irrelevant. And it's very easy to argue, look, that'll only ever be 1% of what we can do and it costs too much and its performance is too low and you'll never make it. It just sounds fanciful. Um, and so it tends to be a rather unproductive conversation at that point. And the visionary looks at the first horizon and says, well, you just don't, you just don't see it. Neither, you just don't see that in the, you're, you're the dinosaur. You're not going to be there in whatever, 5, 10, 20, 50, 50 years. And so each looks at the other as being out to lunch um, but they don't have to because actually there can be a positive conversation and this was the sort of um, I was used to in Hewlett-Packard where you know we, you would turn up to a division um, with this new idea this new technology and the company had been built on innovation and the, one of the slogans was if anyone's going to obsolete your business it'd better be you if someone's going to make you redundant, make just knock you out of the out of the market, you should be the one that does that invention and completely revolutionises the business. But to do that, you have to behave in these different ways, keep the current business going while you build up the new. Okay, well let's let's kind of take a step further in this uh, conversation then. So, uh, obviously, your background, as you've explained, is is very much in this uh, future design, future future thinking, future strategy. So within that kind of futures landscape there are typical tools that people already use to, where does three horizons sit within that so i think before this uh, call we uh, had talked about forecasts uh, forecast sorry roadmaps scenario plannings where where does three horizons locate itself within that i think it's first helpful to make a distinction between everyday business planning and the field of futures practice and everyday business planning works on the assumption that the past is a reasonably good guide to the future. 
whether it's a weather forecast or a budget plan. Now, we know that those, those plans and forecasts never turn out quite the way we expect, but we use a model. There'll be a high forecast, a low forecast, and something in the middle, and that's, that's more or less what the future will be. So that's the, the, the domain of what I just call everyday, everyday business planning or everyday forecasting. Futures works when the complexity moves beyond that, where the past is not going to be an adequate guide to the future as it would be just thinking about the emergence of smartphones. And I was around when the transition was just going in from for voice to, to data and nobody really knew what they were going to use the data for. You couldn't predict what the markets were going to be worth. Just really, you just didn't know. And one of the, there are then two key tools that are widely used in the futures field for managing those situations. On the one hand, if you can really plot a path that you want to go down, then that's the world of roadmaps. And technologists love roadmaps. And we've all heard of Moore's Law, the anticipation that the industry can keep doubling performance every 18 months or so. Or in mobile phones, where out of all the possible technological possibilities, the industry came together and set out a path and each generation can set a, an ambition for the next generation. So we've worked our way through and we're just in the, in the four to five generation. So that's a way of, pushing uncertainty out to the to the margins and like an engineer does focusing in on the things we know we can do and de-risk and get done next so that's very amenable to, to technology technologists usually have a pretty good idea of what they can do next what's within reach as an ambition that's the first one technologically but then also if you're going to deploy the next generation of mobile phones smartphones then many other people have to come together and agree that path. You've got infrastructure to build, you've got regulations on safety to be met, you've got all sorts of players have to come together and plot that path together, share patents, share intellectual property so that everyone can build out the system. So you can anticipate your future in that sense to some degree and plot a shared path. And it's non-technological domains as well, but you've got to bring everyone with you and roadmaps play that role of bringing everyone with you. The other place you can go is by saying, look, the world is just uncertain um, and whatever we're going to do within our business or whatever, we can't anticipate the environment we're going to operate in. And that's a bit like preparing a plane to, to fly in all sorts of different weather conditions, put it in the wind tunnel and try it in ice and snow and gales and hurricanes and everything else. So scenario planning has occupied the centre of the field of futures practice. And the basic idea is to tell a small number of challenging stories about the future that hold all the major uncertainties. So if you're a financial firm today, you might have one major uncertainty, like will the Eurozone survive over the next 20 years? Realistic uncertainty in that. The other one might be, will the rule-based international trading regime survive or not? Will we break it up? That would give you four different stories. You could think about how you might respond to any of those you're not going to have the power to change what they are so they they represent a context you're working in and a source of fundamental uncertainty now what we're using three horizons for is to say what everyone is facing now is the need to come together and deliberately plot some sort of future have some sort of vision of the zero carbon future we're all heading towards 
and recognize simultaneously that there are many uncertainties that we're going to have to deal with. So we're going to have to plot what we like to call a pathway or an adaptive pathway where we're taking steps together to realize this future with real clarity of direction and intent, but also remaining open to continually learning and adapting as we go along. And that's where we we're using Three Horizons. There are other tools you can use in that space, but Three Horizons is, is this really simple approach that people can get going with um, and, and start to make some progress. Well, if, if we can keep using, because of the nature of the audience, that zero carbon future is our kind of background point of reference. Let's, could you kind of walk us back through those, the Three Horizons? If you could give a bit more of a flavor about how, how do you typically in, not just explain those but investigate those within uh, the kind of uh, partnerships and, and client base that, that you have how, how does this tend to unfold okay the simplest sort of three horizon conversation as you've just outlined it starts by looking at our current way of life the first horizon in the domain of interest now for the people um, that you're talking to here decarbonizing hard to abate sectors, uh, then that is what you'll be looking at. Say, okay, we're looking at, say, our urban, our material environment and how we build the buildings we're in and, and produce all those materials. So you would scope out what's the pattern of interest here that we need to look at. And then you would simply say, in what respect do we feel that this particular pattern, this first horizon pattern, is losing its fit to the future, is showing signs of strain, not responding to opportunities, is in some way no longer stable and, and, and fit for the future, no longer what, what we need. So you, you document all that and you pull out all, all that. And once you've done that, there's sort of a, a certain sense of release. You also look maybe at what's holding it in place because it's there for a reason. It's like, well, this is this is feeding the world or this is keeping us warm every day or what is it? Or that can be a good reason or there can also be others like, well, some the incumbents have actually captured the system. They're, they're holding back from change. So you want to get all the factors out that are holding the current system in place for better or for worse. Um, it's, it's problems, it's weaknesses, what, what you're sensing as the diagnosis. You then move over to the third horizon and say, okay, if there is going to be a future system, let's try and set our time horizon where it's realistic to think that, that a change could have come about for the topic of interest. Are we talking years, decades or centuries for this, this area to really change to something new? So I'm used to computing where 10 to 15 years, the industry changes reliably, predictably, in the sense that you know it's going to change, you just don't know what it's going to change to. So that's a good time horizon. Some of these other industries, particularly in decarbonisation, we're using 2030, 2050 and 2100 as aiming points for the scale of change we need. So very rapid change by 2030, but by 2050, the change to a zero carbon society is really a pretty massive transformation. And then beyond that, to completely rebuild society in a more regenerative way is probably going to be the work of a couple of generations. So you, you get a sense of the time horizon and then you say, well, what are the visions for this future? Do we all share one? Are there competing visions? Is it very contested? Have we got a very clear vision that we want to articulate? So you articulate the visions of the third horizon that you can see around you that people are investing in and articulating that will populate that emerging pattern of the third horizon. Once you've done that, then you look at the second horizon and say, what's the innovation going on? Where do we see 
entrepreneurial activity, not just business entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, any sort of entrepreneurs who are both sensing the, the weakness and lack of the first horizon and in anticipating and investing in change to bring about a third horizon. And you simply document all the, all the examples that you've got and see what sort of energy is going on around the second horizon. Once you've built your map, that's then you then you can move on and start to have a conversation where you organize the, th the third horizon, where are the main landing points we want to go for, where's the main momentum in the second horizon that we actually want to work with and build on or challenge. So you get a sense of, like with any map, okay, if that's the map of the landscape, what journey are we going to take um, that, that most fits the emerging realities? Yeah, and I, again, I'm... I'm struck by as you're thinking I can I can see and hear how this applies to both a massive system but also potentially I don't know Alex Cameron Industries <laughs> producer of the most hard to abate material you know you could see how in a in a company like that it, that actually being able to have a model for discussion that gets people to step out of their standard mode and kind of actually look at look at what is possible but also what is now uh, that's a productive conversation. I, I suppose in one of the other articles I read about this, that was that was the point, wasn't it? That this allows for more nuanced discussion, a more productive discussion than the classic, we should be doing this, well, I don't think we're ready, you know, bluntly. Yes, um, common to all futures practice, particularly scenario planning, as, as we've talked about it, um, is that with any management team, the first step is to is to remove yourself from your own organisation and look at the landscape at large and see what are the actors and factors, as we call them, that are going to shape the future. So not to get into your own immediate, what should we do about that? Just put that down to begin with and get a much clearer sense of the overall context that you're working within, where the sources of change are, and then come back and, and focus on your own activity. So... In painting the third horizon, don't just look at your own vision, but look at the, the other visions that are out there. Are you, is it going to be very contested or is it more a matter of just coalescing people around something specific? Um, and then in the second horizon, you can start to see are other things going on that we can build on. Going back to my HP days, I learned very early that when the senior manager would come around and we'd show him our exciting stuff that we were working on, he'd say, and is anyone else doing anything like this? And of course, as an engineer, proud of your staff, you'd, the temptation was, oh, no, this is completely unique. And that was a really bad answer, uh, because if no one else in the industry could see that something in this area was likely to succeed, then that meant there was probably a pretty high risk and you were maybe off a bit at the margins. So there was value in really understanding what was going on out there in the market more broadly, what was the sense of readiness for the thing you wanted to do, and then what was your, your unique advantage going to be? Um, and I think plainly the same thing is true in this decarbonisation challenge is that we can articulate a vision as it would be um, zero carbon transport. And then there are critical uncertainties about which technology we're going to settle down on. And the, and, and the industry really has to settle down on one or the other. There will be winners and losers. And while that's still up for grabs, it's very hard for the investment to flow. So getting on the S-curve, as we like to say, getting on that path of rapid improvement and transformation means that the second horizon has to settle down eventually on one or, or two technologies and then it, and then and then we can really fly so yeah first you want to get a sense of what's going on more broadly then you want to home in and focus on 
on one or two paths. And I think as we've just, you just alluded to there and uh, it sort of feels clear as, as you talk it through, there must be, when you're, when you're discussing this within a group, there must be a variety of classic voices that you hear each time, whether it's the, the fully entrenched, oh, this will never, you know, never work voice or whatever. So talk to me a little bit about the kind of, what are the, the kind of classic voices that often come up in these discussions and, and how, how, yeah, how do you engage with them? A little detour here. You, you'll be familiar, I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners will, with the work of Clayton Christensen, who really coined the term disruptive innovation, which is now used very, very widely. Um, and it's the subtitle of that book that I have always found so intriguing, which is how good management causes great companies to fail. Because he, he started working on that book, looking at companies in the computer industry, some of whom had successfully navigated generational change in technologies, and then others that seemed to be really well-run businesses and had completely failed and uh, to make a critical transition. And the recognition he came to was that actually the technology wasn't the problem. Making a transition in a major technology, well, technologists love doing that. That's, that's not the hard part, really. The hard part is having to let go of its current source of success, which is making the money, paying the dividends, giving everybody a pension and having to switch to something that looks much less successful, hasn't got the scale, hasn't got the profit margins, in that sense, hasn't been fully invented yet. And you're telling me you're going to bet the company on that? I'm too busy. I've got a board meeting in five minutes. Thanks very much. And, and what? You know, you think I'm going to do that? And I don't have anybody who knows how to do that anyway. So making these sorts of transitions requires a very particular approach to managing the change where you have to recognize that you actually can't easily do two things at once um, that if you're responsible for keeping the current business going then you cannot every day get up in the day and base your success entirely on something new so the way this needs to be managed is that you have to set up organizations that are going to live or die by the new thing if it's that different to the to the first horizon so there will always be things that the first horizon can do to make its business better. And the example here would be, you know, we can, we can make internal combustion engines much more efficient, um, get more miles per gallon, make the cars better in all sorts of ways. But it doesn't matter how much better you make it, it's never going to be an electric vehicle. So when you get these sort of transitions, the new one is never going to make the current model successful. You have to set up a separate structure where the new one can win. Um, and so when when you get this conversation between the current system and the new, it's always going to have this sense of unreality from both sides. Um, and for good reason, it's not, it's not that people are bad managers. It's that good management means keeping the current system going in one case, and it means starting something entirely new with different success criteria on the other. And if you try, if you don't recognize that as a transformation, then it's not going to be a productive conversation. If on the other hand, you can say, look, we now need to manage the existing business as a cash cow or whatever over a certain period of time. We don't want to invest in it anymore. We need to run it well, but by the way, it's going to pay the bills so that we can make the transition. So let's make sure people know that's their main job. And then over here, these people are going to be measured by their ability uh, to build the new and bring it successfully to market. Okay, well, um, I wonder if we could have a look at some of the kind of applications for this kind of practice. Are there examples, not necessarily specific company names, but sort of industries or, or example that kind of feel uh, you could share that kind of 
really speak to the audience for for this series in a way the problem is is just just selection any any topic where you want to think about change three horizons can give you a good conversation around it so i've been doing a lot of work with leaders quest and a program called future stewards that they set up um, a few years ago to bring these tools and practices firmly into the field of climate change and the transformations we need for for zero carbon and and more broadly for the shift to a more regenerative society um, and over these years, we've run Three Horizon Conversations on, on a very wide range of topics, obviously renewable energy, obviously transport, uh, land use and food systems. So any one of these topics, um, you can convene a set of people. Um, biodiversity was another one that was a very interesting uh, piece of work um, with the Luke Hoffman Institute just one day, looking back at the last hundred years of biodiversity work and saying, look, we're not getting where we want to get. We're, we're measuring species to extinction, was how one participant put it. What have we actually got to do to create some fundamentally different logic of the world that would actually change the way that we're doing things? And in a way, recognising that a lot of the activity had actually been captured, if you like, or trapped still within the first horizon system. So it was a bit like making internal combustion engines more efficient without ever building electric vehicles. So in, in many areas, the, the main value people are getting out of this is seeing that they can do lots of projects but still not change the system. Um, if you talk to any sort of NGO, they will often say, yes, we, over the last 10 years, 20 years, we've done 100 projects for change. They all met all their KPIs and we still haven't changed the system at all. So I've been in a lot of conversations of this sort on any of these topics that you might like to uh, bring up from, from climate change, um, where people are finding it easier to articulate what we've got to do to really change the system versus what we've got to do to just improve it. And I say that's been across land use, renewable energies, hard to abate industries, steel and plastics. We had a workshop on that. Um, so all these areas now I'm not saying and because of that suddenly everybody went away and was able to transform the system um, transformation is a long hard difficult process and you have to wait a good long time before you can look back and see how one piece of work might or might have contributed to that success that's what i found so interesting about uh, reading around this is the opportunity to make a real change but without either a a collapse or b dying by inactivity you know I think a useful little phrase that we've started using in the um, in the climate work um, is getting on the S curve. Now, most technologists are are familiar with this idea that you can that the learning curve is an exponential curve. That once you get a new technology going, then you can reliably anticipate a certain rate of of improvement year by year, multiplying year by year, and and it turns out that the human mind is just really, really bad at anticipating the effect of that. So a lot of the, the stuck conversation is that's irrelevant. It's far too small. It's not for, it, it hasn't got the industrial strength. It'll never make it. And that's because most people who have worked in industries which don't change very fast, which don't have this rapid generational turnover that computing has, are not familiar with this exponential effect of things doubling, as in computing, every 18 months, where you just have to get used to it. Um, and you plot those improvement curves. And 
it was perfectly possible to see around about the turn of the millennium that by round about 2015, we would have grid-capable photovoltaics. But everybody in the energy industry and the IEA and people were just, just not predicting that at the time. So there was this stuckness because we weren't really anticipating the rate of exponential change that was available to us. And Three Horizons can help you focus in on saying that the critical thing to achieve in the second horizon is to get on the S-curve to get the core of this going and to begin with it won't be performing to scale and, and, and to the level we need but once we've got it in place and we start to invest in it it will grow and it can grow rapidly and we can see that once we're on that curve then whether it's five years or 20 years the cutover point the disruption of the current business is assured and three horizons can really help bring that clarity to say okay the activist is telling us that there's a zero carbon world out there there are many uncertainties, but the critical thing is, is there a technological path that we could get on that given this clarity of focus and investment and this exponential improvement would get us there? And if you simply ask that question, the answer is usually, yes, there is. There is something and it isn't a continuation of the current path and it will require that we manage ourselves to, to hold the current one in place while investing in the new. But it's perfectly feasible. Um, and if we, the incumbents, don't get onto it, then sooner or later someone's going to challenge us. Who will? Last question then. Obviously, 2021 is a big year in a lot of ways, I think, you know, post, hopefully post-COVID, um, <laughs> or at least a world where we can start you know, that not being the number one conversation, but also COP26, which uh, clearly had to be postponed from 2020 for COVID reasons. So as we look towards uh, COP26, how how could Three Horizons uh, feed into that meeting? How could it feed into the thinking and the preparations that companies looking at that meeting are making for themselves? How, how could that help? I've got quite an ambition for Three Horizons providing a, a common language that helps people tackle these complex problems together. Um, very early on in developing this, one of my colleagues said, look, but it's just three lines on a piece of paper. It's pretty simple. Um, and we've sort of taken that as a metaphor, rather like music. You know, the musical stave, it's just five lines on a piece of paper. But once you've got it, you can have a symphony. It would be very hard to write a symphony, to have a hundred players all producing one amazing piece of music if you couldn't write it down on, on the staves, if you couldn't bring all that complexity together so that everyone could play you know, an exciting piece of music in harmony. And I think we've got exactly the same problem going on now. We have many industries, some of whom have never even done much innovation, all needing to come together and have these visions, get on these pathways of change together, but they have no adequate way of sorting that complexity out and finding where they are in that, in that picture. So I think the more that we can spread this very simple language, this very simple orientation of ourselves to the future, the more we will be able to come together and, and play a symphony play some music that's adequate to the challenge um, and let go of our mindsets from each of these, the activist versus the, the current manager, and actually see that we've all got something to contribute um, and that we can move a lot faster than we're doing at the moment, that every this can really be accelerated. That's my ambition. Well, thank you, Bill, so much. Uh... I said, I think slightly jokingly to you before this, that I had stalked you for several months, but I'm very glad I did. Um, I, I put on a very personal level, I had found uh, reading the Three Horizons uh, book, but also some of the other reading and research around it, just on a personal level, really interesting about how you can 
challenge your own kind of three voices on on most things but definitely like the the application i think for industries facing quite complex challenges a lot of people who are very willing to make change but maybe finding it difficult to affect change i just i think the application feels really strong there so thank you for taking the time to talk it through thank you alex it's been a pleasure